So I have another confession to make. I think it has something to do with imposter syndrome of things, but sometimes I feel like I work on something and then I think, why would anyone ever follow me on this? Why would anyone ever listen to this? This is crazy. I don't know what I'm talking about. People don't want to listen to me. And I think it's a common thing that people struggle with, especially in the tech industry and being a young person up and coming in this industry. But Anyways, that's all to say, this is the Hacker Noon Podcast, and my name is Amy Tom. Today, I'm going to get into all of that with Ravi, who is the CTO of Couchbase. So Ravi, I'm so excited to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me, Amy. Can you tell me a bit about your role at Couchbase? Yeah, I'm the CTO and SVP of engineering here at Couchbase. It's been a little over almost eight years now since I've been in this role here in this company, primarily guiding, setting the technology vision and developing the product. And uh, when you develop, uh, you also want to hear from the customers in terms of what they want, as well as how they use it. So interacting with customers, knowing their future plans and the trends and the technologies that they intend to use and how they intend to use Couchbase as a product. So it's been an exciting journey talking to some of the top technology thinkers in the industry in the as well as in academia and building a database is not something that happens very how do you say often so it's a privilege to be able to develop something new and yeah. that's the excitement here cool so i want to talk to you about your career and how you actually became a cto but mm-hmm. first can you tell me what does it really mean to be a cto what are you doing in your day to day what do you even do? I think it's a, it's a CTO is a sort of a management position. It's in different parts, in different stages of evolution of a small company. In the earlier stages of a company, a CTO could actually be a coder, the first, the first time innovator of a product or an idea or the prototyping of an idea. And as, as it grows, it's a management sort of a position where you're to lead a bunch of extremely smart, smarter than you for sure, uh, engineers. And how do you keep them engaged? That becomes a challenge. How do you set the right kind of vision, which engineers, as you are a very smart bunch, unless they believe that a substance to your vision, they wouldn't typically take that on. And as ideas are a dime a dozen, it's in the execution that the magic lies. And so the engineer is feeling the innovation involved and building to that is where the, the real magic is. So it's in the two sides of the equation. One is setting the right sort of technology goals for the people and the second is seeing it through to completion mm-hmm. as in from the idea stage to actually bits on disk as i call it until mm-hmm. you have a piece of software that actually works and delivers value to customer it's not either that useful or that exciting so it's in that journey that you as a cto your role is to understand the requirement because many a times customers will tell you i need a faster horse mm-hmm. it's your job to go tell them actually what you need is a car and mm-hmm. that's what we're building. And this happens at various levels in various ways. Engineers do the same thing because when you give them a requirement, they reimagine to say, what is it that requires building? So it's in this tra- translation that you play a good role in terms of how to shape and direct the product. And then rest is all in the sort of mechanics of day-to-days of um, ensuring that, that the teams function and teams deliver the product that you that you think the market requires. And so there comes the second part of it, talking to the customers and the market and industry, seeing where things are and making adjustments towards that. So that's a long-winded way of saying your job is to deliver a product from conception to reality. And mm. uh, 
in the process deal with the all the creative and gnarly engineers and keep them happy and happy cows make great yeah. cheese so you gotta keep them happy to <laughs> oh produce some fantastic product you have just given me like six different beautiful analogies in that one minute speech and i loved all of it i've never been a cto or a c-level manager but in my mind's vision i imagine that it's very like strategic you have to be mm-hmm high level a lot because you can't be nitty gritty into the coding and developing of course mm-hmm. you need to have a good eye for the overall picture and so I want to understand how you got to that point where you are able to have that view that holistic overview and have that management experience so let's start from the beginning where did you study college and what did you study I did my uh, master's level in pure mathematics, and this is uh, back in India. And so I did not have any formal sort of the computer science engineering education, so to say, in, in the classic sense of the word. But then if you're generally analytical and curious, it leads you in this sort of a space where you can actually express because some of the, the principles that we actually use in engineering, if we take it to the, the true science level, that becomes math principles and the mathematics. Mm-hmm. So if you have that sort of a background, I think that helps with. But, but then after that, it is, how do you say, you can almost call it serendipitous to enter into the coding arena. And that is simply a question of opportunities. Lots of, as in the last 20, 30 years, it's been this digital journey that we have come a long way ever since uh, William Shockley invented the transistor in the 50s. It's been a digital journey in one sense. And that's how you find the opportunities in this. And it's somehow, after a while, it's it's a fish taking the water because coding is logic. And if you find fun in it, then you start, yeah. you start coding very low level and simpler stuff, then it automatically evolves to positions so of greater responsibility. Did you say degree in mathematics? Correct. And so let me ask you this, as someone who wants to enter the technology field, let's Mm -hmm. say, is a degree required, do you think? (laughs) No, actually not, but it helps, put it this way. It helps at two levels. One is when you are very young, you tend to concentrate on the skill side of it, which is coding. How quickly can you code? How how much can you code? Or you're in the skill side of it, not on the science side of it. And that comes from maturity, so to say. That's part of growing up in one sense. Now, if you had the opportunity to go to formal engineering and computer science schools, what they teach you a good part is the science of it. And coding skills, you pick up on the side. It's like one subject that you perhaps learn to say, hey, coding in, pick the language of your choice, uh, C or Java or Golang or any of these things. It's a tool that is used to put many of the scientific principles to action, an algorithm design or designing an operating system or a distributed system and all these things are the signs that you actually learn. Is it really required? No. But if you have a formal education, does it help? Yes. And so nobody should feel like it's not some, it's not a field which it's a prerequisite Mm -hmm. to have some, it's not like, uh, how do you say, being a doctor. Yeah. Okay. I think it's interesting that you say that because I think when you, a lot of times when people ask that question, do you need a degree to get into technology? You're either, people either say yes or no. Yeah. The degree is helpful or whatever, but 
in terms of people saying yes, I think a lot of people have said yes because of the paper. But I think it's interesting <laughs> what you, to hear what you're saying, which is yes, because you actually learn the skills. I think that's really interesting. Now, what about an MBA? So as a CTO, mm-hmm. do you think like, you don't have an MBA, you have a degree, right? Is oh. an MBA required to become a C-level manager? I don't think so. This is the, this is the proof point is perhaps uh, it's not, in any, it's how do you say it? in whatever small way is. Are people like me? There are many mm-hmm. people who are in in this sort of a role, in heavily technology focused role. An MBA is not a prerequisite. If you have that, it's good because you'll understand the business side of the equation. But that just helps codify that you understand that side. But if you have put put in your hours and you have you know been, most important thing is having the relevant experience. Education helps you to get the relevant experience, but not the other way around. If you have the experience, that is the real education in yeah. one sense and nothing to uh, take away from getting degrees and uh, MBAs and, and a master's level or PhDs and stuff like that but it's not the be all end all it's not the be all end all it's not necessary but definitely it is not sufficient okay so let's move further down into your career. At mm-hmm. what point did you decide that you wanted to start climbing the proverbial management ladder of tech? It's a, a very interesting question because at least from my perspective, it was it was a natural consequence of something that you do and not so much, I mean, especially in technology, climbing the ladder makes sense if you're in one company and you're making progression through that, so to mm-hmm. say. In this, in, in the Silicon Valley-oriented mindset, typically you're, you're going to places of innovation. You're, you spend six years here or seven years there, or whatever the span is and stuff like that. So as a part of doing that, it evolves. You, have, you evolve the product, you get to be the person who's doing the next thing, as opposed to, I climbed the ladder and then so I got to do more stuff. Does that make sense? So it's not a direct way... I would I put it this way, keep building interesting stuff automatically, more responsibilities come your way. And then that naturally leads to the okay, effect of I would over. argue that yeah. as a person in tech, I can either go into the management route, which is mm-hmm. what you've done, Correct. or you can you don't have to be in the management area. You can Correct. go further into becoming like a master developer or whatever. Yes. So yes. what was it about the like leading and like yeah. the management that appealed to you? I think it's about uh, your personality, as in there was a stage in my career where I would say it's in, in one sense, it's almost easier to talk to machines than to humans. So <laughs> mm-hmm. there is that phase. And some people, if I were to say, continue on that phase and mm-hmm. they they become the master craftsmen. They are the architects and the senior architects. That's yeah. one side, chief architects and chief scientists and of that nature, because they are deep thinkers of uh, a certain area or they're systemic thinkers in, in a given sort of a domain, if you will, versus the other path you can take in engineering. It, this These forks come when you're six, eight years into the industry, 10 years or so, where you decide at some point, opportunities lead you in one direction or the other, which is to say, lead, lead a team or get deeper into a, a certain component or a certain part of the product. So I would say, in my case, it was that naturally tended towards leading more teams. And one aspect of it is your natural ability to relate to people and help them, by example, whenever you can, get to their next phase of wherever they see the growth to be. If you are part of that, then automatically it leads you in the manage- managerial direction. And that's how I moved on to the management side versus continuing on the 
technical engineering sort of uh, path. And mm-hmm. uh, a second side of the equation, I think, is that the guys who end up being architects and chief architects are way more smarter than me. So <laughs> I think I should leave it to the really smart people. Yeah, I think smart is subjective. I think ma- managerial smarts absolutely yeah. necessary. And the same flip side of the coin is that those architects are going to say, I would never be able to do the CTO's job. There is there is some truth to that. But I think gen- generally, I have greater admiration in one sense for the pure science or the purity of what they actually build. So there is I have a lot of respect. Yeah. So yes, many companies do have this ability for engineers to go on the managerial track or the technical track, as we call mm-hmm. it, and have the ability to grow to your full potential. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I ensure here that it happens. And along the way, there are those places when people are in this crossroads and one of our jobs is to you know, help them make the right decision and right. guide them along. Yeah. So you're talking about helping developers make the decisions in their careers. Mm-hmm. As you were coming up in your career, did you have anyone who was guiding you or a mentor? Not specifically, but as you can take inspiration from a lot of people around you. And I think that's Perhaps what, as opposed to one specific person actually doing that. There were many, let me put it that way. I was lucky to work with some very smart people and I had the the good fortune of learning from them by sheer osmosis and observation. So when you started at Couchbase, was Mm. that the first time that you were a CTO? Yeah, this is the first time at Couchbase that I'm the CTO. And when you entered into Couchbase, you were the CTO, yeah? No, I was not. I was a VP of engineering and then I grew to this role. Okay. And so you've been at Couchbase for eight years, right? Yes. What was the process like of growing within Couchbase and becoming a CTO from within? I think if this is may not be a very satisfactory answer <laughs> as because it's not like a career growth-ish kind of stuff. It's It was a small company. And the opportunity okay. just as part of the growing of the company, the opportunity happened. And in, in, in bigger other companies, there are formal processes that you would normally go through to go there, which involves a committee of peers evaluating and some of that process it does exist in the industry. It's not something that I would say that directly applied in my case. Yeah. Yeah. Did you always know that you wanted to be a CTO? No, <laughs> no. All these things, but at a certain level, they they look appealing. And but I would say, at a certain level, it's not about the title. It's about the job that you do. Titles are there to communicate what type of job you're doing. If you just see it that way, it's better for yourself as opposed to hanging too much value on titles. They happen right. if you're in the right place, right time, and you do the right job. They just come, but concentrate on the value you bring to the people around you and to yourself and that takes care of the rest yeah okay let me ask you this as a child what was your dream job it was such a long time ago i honestly i have to say it had to be something like a you know it it had to be somewhat mechanical at a certain level i I want to say one of those what do you call firemen more like the person who's driving the fire truck (laughs) or or like a freight train driver kind of stuff something which which was doing some magically mechanical stuff which was impressive to see as a child right no the cto or any of this uh, corporate ladder kind of stuff uh, as a kid uh, i wouldn't say that it was anything that i had actually dreamed of but as you grow you realize that the physical mechanical side is one there are mm-hmm. equally more beautiful or even more beautiful things happening in the digital world and there's a lot to be done and 
so that's the that's the fun on this side of the house yes i think that's a nicer answer than mine i think when i was younger i wanted to first i wanted to be a marine biologist then as i grew a little older i watched a movie and i decided i wanted to be a con artist <laughs> so <laughs> like it's not a nice career path for a seven-year-old to go for <laughs> Well, it could be a magician, right? I mean, just twist it a little yes. bit. Yes, <laughs> magician, <there. laughs> quote unquote magician. No, it's okay. I went into sales and it was pretty much the same thing. Okay, so how did you get then into the like cloud computing database mm-hmm. industry? Well, this cloud computing is something that we have all come to know. I had I've been in the cloud computing business long before it was called cloud. Back uh, when I did some of the first initial work on this, it was called application service providers. That's what it was. It was applications delivered as a service. That was a transition. This is at the turn of the century, so to say. So it's that far back. Wait, when Um, do you think that was? That's like 2000, 2001 timeframe. Okay. Yeah. Those were the first initial good old days of that data centers where they're in fancy and internet People still had dial-up modems and uh, yeah. you know, that was still not gone. AOL was a thing. The current generation wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. At a certain level. And, and cell phones were those candy phones in which you couldn't perhaps even text properly. There yeah. was no smartphones yet at the time. But right, even then, cloud was there. Cloud was beginning uh, to take shape. So it was a natural evolution of computing, if you will, to go from monolithic applications and software, bundled software to shrink-wrapped software to software as a service. And that's what became cloud, which is multiple now, multiple abstractions exist within that. So that's so it was it was to put a software as a service that where my introduction to cloud computing happened and databases has been a field for a while since the 70s databases have been I've played roles in multiple areas operating systems as one of the first things that I developed was operating systems I've done mobile computing done middleware databases so they are all like what I would generally call a system software there and then we have of course run application as a service so there's a span of relevant experience as my career grew and so it's a natural evolution of where the industry trend was going to more and more cloud computing and that's Mm -hmm. that's how i got into it okay so if you were to start over Mm -hmm. would you go into the same industry or do you recognize another tech trend that you'd be interested in going into i wouldn't start differently but the landscape also keeps changing yeah um, uh, you know and because there are certain things that you built in the past which are now assumed to be available and then you build on top of it so from that perspective i would always want to be closer to data because mm-hmm. at the end of the day anything digital is data and but what we are doing here is to re reconstruct the the database for the modern world what we have in the database as an industry we have come a long way but there are a lot of stuff that we still use is it's like using landlines with dial tones nowadays you're on the mobile side of the spectrum where there's no dial tone so it's that paradigm shift that just to give you an example that's what happened in the telecom world something similar we need to make happen on the database side of the world and that's what this attempt uh, that we are doing at couchbase is to build a modern sort of a database and yeah. so I would do the, to answer your question, yes, I would still want to be close to data and databases, but there are a couple of things which have fundamentally changed. And so as we move forward here, as well as in terms of what I would like, if I had a second chance to do differently more and stuff like that would be in the space generally, this is a very often abused sort of a phrase and area, is which is 
broadly speaking, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right? Because the data that we, we talk about now, everybody knows there's a lot more data than ever before. Every day we are generating more than what we generated the entire up to the entire point of you know 20th century and stuff like that. That that sort of narrative exists. But what does that mean is basically that now more and more data is being generated by machines than humans. Mm-hmm. So in, in this world, when there is a lot more data being generated by everything around you, your cars, your IoT, anything that you enable, they're all spewing out a lot of data. How are you going to make sense out of it? How are you going to find the signal in it from the noise, so to say? And how are you going to get actionable insights? That's what it finally comes to, you know, time to insight. So your old techniques that we had used earlier no longer work because the scale has redefined the problem. And yeah. so you have to now use newer sort of models. And this is where the AI, the machine learning and other neural models that are in place, which help you make sense of this data and synthesize that to a point where you can take it. That's what provides you the insight. So I would still want to be in this space to start with. And mm-hmm. we are evolving here also, but more effort in the sort of the AI areas is what's, yeah. what's coming for the future. Yeah, I agree with you. I think machine learning, the more you get into it, the crazier it is and the yes. more mind-blowing it is. And yeah, it's and I what my interest is in with the data yeah. portion and AI mm-hmm. and machine learning is how we can train the AI and the machines to to process the data in a way that is neutral or like mm-hmm. without biases, you know yes. what I mean? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of biases when it comes to AI right now because Correct. the data is still being fed by humans. And if you have a data set that is filled with biases, such as racial biases, which is a yep. really big issue in AI, mm-hmm. I think, it's inter- it'll be interesting to see how that develops and how we can solve that and fix the problems that are around that. That's where I, my interest in data and, analy- and AI Lovely. lies. A lot of opportunity there. It's got to mature considerably from yes. where we are. And that's where a lot of innovation would be. And the more important, more basal stuff that has to happen in this AI world is what experts call as explainability. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to explain why the AI produced the result that mm-hmm. you finally accept it at a certain level. Mm-hmm. So explainability but of isn't AI. It cra- is isn't it scary when you... When there's no explanation, ah, the computers are going to take over the world or something. I think that's the first thing because out of that will come, which is the next aspect that many people think and work on is, which is trust. Yes. And accountability of AI too, I think. So Um, you just have to build a trustable system, which is what you have now because humans are involved in many of this process. So you're explainable. And because of that comes the trust in the systems that we have built. And in the next generation of systems that we have to build, we have to build trust in them. That this actually is giving us the, to, to marry to the point you were saying, which is that it is actually giving me an unbiased answer in one sense. Mm-hmm. And so at least learn what the biases are and then you can mm-hmm. fix them and stuff like that. But so yeah. those are the areas which are, that are, the infrastructural or systemic stuff that we have these are the things to fix there and then so then the application side of it mm-hmm. also in terms of learning models and what you do over there yeah. the let's talk about trust thing. for a minute because i think that this goes back to management experience it goes mm-hmm. back to my feelings of imposter syndrome and the more that you trust someone the more likely you're going to follow them so i would assume that trust or building trust is an essential skill for tech management to have. Mm -hmm. What are some other areas that 
like maybe soft skills that managers need to have in to be a, a tech in tech management? I think it starts with first having uh, a domain experience. That now I'm going to use the to use a computer uh, programmer word. I'm going to overload the term trust. The mm-hmm. trust context in which I talked about AI is different. Right? Yeah, this trust you're talking is the yeah. human to human interaction trust, and when you're leading a software developers, the way you develop trust with them is being able to have an honest debate about the problems that we are going to solve. And in that, you bring in your experience. It's almost like you don't tell them what to do. You tell them the seven ways what not to do. Come up with mm-hmm. your own new way. These are the mm-hmm. seven other ways we have tried before. Mm-hmm. And what the challenges were or what problems got solved and what did not. That I think then you have a very sort of healthy and creative sort of an environment. So am I hearing you say giving your employees autonomy? Yes, that's that's inherent part of this. And that autonomy also comes from trust. It's the other side of the trust, right? Mm -hmm. That comes from experience of working together. Autonomy is almost like in sports world, it's like the no-look pass. The person will be there so it can pass. The autonomy is of that nature. The person will take care of it in the manner which is right and you trust their judgment. So the autonomy is the other side of the trust. You first develop the trust and then the autonomy comes out of that and absolutely required that Mm -hmm. autonomy is a very critical part of creative thinking and innovation. Because if they always have to look over their shoulder to see if whatever they're doing is right, then I think creativity is hampered. So they, Mm -hmm. it's Peter Drucker used to call it, they are the knowledge workers. They are not your sort of supervise them or how you give them the creative freedom it's an art. It's not mm-hmm. like some sort of a science, so to say. Yeah. It's not, you cannot time chunk them, punch in, punch out. doesn't work. Yeah. So it's in that. You have to have, in one sense, grown in that yourself. As in, you should be treated, you should have been treated that way to say that, okay, Ravi, here is the goal. Mm-hmm. Go achieve it. And have periodic sort of checkpoints to see, are you going there kind of stuff. In, in between, you are given all the space and the freedom. When you observe that, that's exactly what you then provide to your team at a certain level. So at that level, your own experience comes to influence how you you formulate teams and how you allow them to innovate. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Brene Brown? No. She's a researcher and yeah. she studies shame resilience mm-hmm. and she is really involved in training business leaders. So she's got this podcast and I have listened to it before. And one of the pieces that she talks about is how if you are constantly looking over someone's shoulder and trying to micromanage them and not giving mm-hmm. them that trust that they need, they are not going to do the best work that they could possibly do because you're essentially shaming them into working. Yeah. There's like, why aren't you doing more? And that is not an environment that can foster proper work Uh, flow and productivity and so she's talking about how as a manager you can't shame your employees into working it's not an effective tactic yeah and and software development is a creative art if you will and Mm -hmm. there you need to be even more uh, careful and sensitive because some of these people have that an artist's temperament if you will and definitely the freedom is absolutely required the flip side of that freedom comes accountability yeah if you're you because a lot of these creative people are very highly accountable. They take accountability very personally. And so once that alignment happens, then it's perfect. You can give them all the freedom because they're going to think through way more than what you can do as an individual because they have the time and the space and the the creative liberty to think through problems that mm-hmm. even you as a manager haven't anticipated. So in, mm-hmm. in that lies the fun of 
you know, working with such people and building some amazing products. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. As a manager, yeah. did you have any qualms with work from home and trusting your employees? <laughs> no, not at all. But it, mm-hmm. at the same time, I have to say it's an earned thing. Yeah. Now the world has changed post-COVID. How are we going to... But for all those sort of younger people who are starting would want that freedom and stuff like that, they should take this as it's a privilege. It should not be treated as a birthright. It's a, it's a privilege and it's earned. That yeah. Because the flip side of that remoteness is this, again, this trust that I don't need you to tell me every hour of whatever, whatever you're doing. But when it comes to a milestone checkpoint, you come well prepared. The job is done and you'll raise the issues and it's all are not going to be hunky-dory. You're going to have issues. You're going to have problems. And that you raise those because you're remote, you have to put extra effort now to raise mm-hmm. those and bring attention to that. That's the flip side of that freedom that you get for being remote. And that's what they need to understand. And as part of growing up, people understand. So I've never had a huge problem with people. But I do have a problem that if you don't hit the milestones, it's results and output oriented as opposed to uh, status tracking. And as we say, butts on seat, that's, that doesn't work. Yeah. So what is some advice that you have for maybe some college students or some new grads who are breaking into the industry? The fundamental thing uh, to me is you should find your passion. And how do you find passion? It, sometimes it's, it's inside you and it comes. Sometimes you explore a few things and then you find your passion. So you have to, and there is no one recipe. If somebody tells you this is the way, please discard such people because there are infinite paths to this. So all you can do, all you should do is be curious. Just keep asking questions, keep finding answers for yourself. Don't expect somebody else to sit you down and teach you because it's not their responsibility, it is yours. So if you stay curious and oh, love these days with, with the way the, the web is, there is so much information mm-hmm. available to you, so much. Let's say today you want to learn something about machine learning. There are so many courses available online that you can take and after a certain point, you should, you know, find like-minded people, be it places for meetups or your uh, user groups. And these are also available advertised on the on, on online. At the same time, there are colleges that you are affiliated to find like-minded people and hang mm-hmm. out and talk. And that's how you develop the skill of learning. Learning is not something that you do to achieve a 4.0. That is, that's also some, that's also learning, but you should be constantly in this learning mode so that you rejuvenate yourself. And if you're in that curious, just stay curious at a certain level and you will find the answers in, in, at your own pace and at your, mm-hmm. uh, at your time. And you, you will enjoy the journey yourself mm-hmm. as opposed to somebody forcing a timetable on you and, and making you everybody all of us have our own pace of learning our own style of learning and so if you if you learn more then then opportunities will come you can get into a situation where you are actually doing work for a company even though you don't have degrees and stuff like that or you might mm-hmm. find you may work for a couple of years and say no now i understand why i need to take those courses yeah. Uh, which I saw the abstracts for. They all seem a lot of theory. Now I understand how the theory translates to practical application, how my whatever I'm producing can be elegant, right? Science is basically about that teaching you in a codified manner, uh, the principles behind why you want to do what you want to do. So yeah. you might find, you might go that way or you, you may actually go find the sort of 
courses and curriculum that you want to work on. So opportunities will come your way if you stay curious and focused and, mm-hmm. and nothing better than where you are these days because those information come to you in your fingertips, to your okay. phone, to your yeah. nearest digital gadget. Do you have any specific recommendations of resources or self-training or networking? Not something very specific, just for the reason I mentioned earlier that don't get fixated on the yeah. specific. But yeah. Definitely, there are online curriculums you should try. Mm-hmm. There are user groups and meetups for the area that you are interested mm-hmm. in. You should go meet and talk to people. There could be in your own colleges, you could have projects that are going on the side in departments that you should talk to your teachers and lecturers to help you connect with people or in community colleges and stuff like that. You can do stuff on the side. I'm perhaps sitting and talking from location where all these things are very easily available, which is Silicon Valley, colleges and schools available around you. So those are the centers of gravity where you will find a community. You just need to be in a part of a community so you can have conversations and they'll help you out eventually also. All developers are very I can tell you this much, they'll be, they'll go out of the way to help you once they find that you are seeking something. Right. Okay. And my final thing is asking for a friend, of course, but do you feel imposter syndrome and a CTO and how can I mitigate this feeling when I am thinking to myself, like, no one is ever going to follow me? (laughs) Yeah. At a certain level, how do I say you... You should never, in one sense, aim for a followership as a, it should be a consequence of something. It should not be the thing that you're aspiring for. You know what I mean? Mm. People don't follow you because you want, you've done something. I mean, even if you've done something which attracts people just for that purpose, people follow you because you have something interesting to offer at a certain Mm. level. So you keep concentrating on interesting stuff that they offer, then people will choose to follow you or not. From this sort of imposter syndrome thing, there are a lot of times you're making decisions and calls and you're praying that those are the right ones at a certain level. So in those moments, you're taking calculated risks and bets and otherwise no progress will be made if you just take the the, the easy route out. So in, in those moments, you just have to be careful that you're, you're not getting ahead of your skis, so to say, or mm-hmm. you're not doing any snake oil selling. It's yes. got to be based on the right principles, but the results, you're taking a leap of faith a little bit. So at that point, there are those moments of, how do you say, anxiety, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, of this yes. imposter syndrome kind of stuff. Anxiety. <laughs> yes. Exactly. But it's uh, not from the standpoint of, did you dupe anybody into following you? That has mm. never been the case. Yes. As in like followership, just to be authentic. Yes. Just mm-hmm. stay true to yourself. Authenticity is your only currency at the end of the day. Yes. Amazing. And is this something that I will grow out of as I progress through my career? That, oh, the, the imposter yeah. syndrome is what you're saying? Absolutely. Just stay authentic okay, to yourself. <laughs> it's just, it'll come and go, but it'll have less and less impact on who you are. If you, you're centered, then that's yeah. not a problem. Okay. Makes sense. Ravi, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. If our listeners want to find you and Couchbase online, where can they look? They can find me on Twitter. They can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for my name. You'll find me there. And you can, of course, send an email, ravi at couchbase.com, all digital possibilities. Perfect. Okay, I will put all of that in the show notes. And thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
This episode was produced by Hacker Noon and it was hosted by me, Amy Tom. If you liked it, don't forget to subscribe to our Hacker Noon channels. And as always, you can find us at Hacker Noon on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. See you next time. Goodbye.